University of California Television presents this podcast of UC Berkeley's Lunch Poem Series featuring Robert Hass, former Poet Laureate of the U.S. This poetry reading was recorded in December 2003. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I want to talk a little bit about the many, many things that Bob does so well as a writer, as a teacher, and as an advocate for poetry. When he was chosen several years ago to be the U.S. Poet Laureate, Bob took this job seriously in a way that I don't know if anyone before him had done. He really transformed the job from a sinecure into the role of a national advocate for poetry. He traveled all over the country speaking at Kiwanis clubs, community centers, uh, seeking out fans and readers for poetry. Um, During that time, I remember there was an elderly immigrant woman from San Jose who got the number of lunch poems, called me up, and um, said that her granddaughter had just written her first poem, and could she read it to the United States Poet Laureate? And I cautioned her that uh, Bob was very busy. He was flying back and forth all the time between here and Washington, D.C., But I reluctantly gave her Bob's office number because I knew he had already a pile of messages on his machine. And a couple weeks later, I saw Bob and I apologized to him for not screening this call. And he said, no, it's it's okay. I talked to the granddaughter. I heard her poem, and I really enjoyed it. (laughs) So that gives you a sense of how dedicated an advocate and also a teacher Bob is and how generous he is. Four nationally known poets who've read in this series have mentioned that Bob was an important mentor for them at the beginning of their careers. And his students who pack his classes at 8 in the morning um, know why his lectures are full, even at that hour. Um, Bob is is the only writer in the United States that I know of who um, has made vital contributions in poetry, criticism, and translation um, I was once at, a, at one of the readings where Bob was introducing a reader and gave a wonderful introduction, and an English department faculty member who was sitting next to me leaned over and he said, I can accept that he writes better poetry than me, but that he writes better criticism? <laughs> so um, if you haven't read Bob's essays in 20th Century Pleasures or read his translations of Cheslav Milos or the Masters of Japanese Haiku, you're in for really some of the treats of your life. But Bob is here today as a poet, and I want to mention a few things about what makes him so unique in that area. Bob has taken the terrain and the flora and the fauna of the West Coast and brought them into poetry with the curiosity and astuteness of a biologist, but with the artistry of a landscape painter. He combines that with an amazing ability to observe and portray human character. Uh, There was one reader in the Lunch Poem series, for example, who Bob described as a gregarious introvert. His poetry surprises in its leaps and juxtapositions, but Bob never loses his great interest in and compassion for the human condition. Please welcome Robert Huss. Thank you. Thanks. 
I don't know what the what the uh, 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 options are here. Uh, I, I, it's probably fire code issues. So. Yeah, I can't do it. So I'll try to be loud. Let me know if you can't hear. So I give a lot of poetry readings. I never get nervous. I like, you know, reading my poems. I feel like when I'm inside them, I'm inside something very familiar that I know. And then I walked in this room and thought, yikes! Uh, in my own place, it makes me a little bit nervous. Thank you all for coming. And thank you, Zach, for that introduction. It's true that when I was Poet Laureate, I worked at it. And when I was through, the guy who was the head of the... Um, of the... Uh, uh, Library of Congress Arts Division said, I'm, I'm a little bit sorry to see you go, but really there was nothing left for you to do but go door to door. So, <laughs> so, which I thought, I should have done that, you know? <laughs> Just picked a town at random in Kansas and knocked on the door and said, Poetry! I don't know how many places besides Berkeley you get a group of undergraduates and graduate students together all interested in poetry translating from French, Spanish, Catalonian, Swedish, Polish, Japanese, classical Chinese, modern Chinese. Did I leave any? And Russian. And... Uh, we, trans we played at translation. Everybody brought in a rough draft, a word-for-word -word translation. They read the original. They read the word-for-word, -word, and then they read their translations. People started by doing kind of literal translations, and by the end, they were inventing new languages somewhere between these languages. We had so much fun, and they wrote so well. Anyway, they inspired me. I, I'm going to read, start with one of my... Versions. This is a version of a little Geotrockel song called Rondel. And then I'm just going to read relatively new work for 40 minutes or whatever and try some things out on you. October light, the sun going down, evening with its brown and blue, faint music from another room, evening with its blue and brown, October light, the sun going down. Well, Rondel. So this is a poem called um, Envy of Other People's Poems. <laughs> In one version of the legend, the sirens couldn't sing. It was only a sailor's story that they could. So Odysseus, lashed to the mast, was harrowed by a music that he didn't hear. Plungings of sea, wind shear, the offshore hunger of the birds, and the mute women gathering kelp for garden mulch, seeing him strain against the cordage, seeing the awful longing in his eyes, are changed forever on their rocky waste of islands by their imagination of his imagination of the song they didn't sing. Um, 
have a few little poems that are homages, um, and this is one, it's, it's called A Supple Wreath of Myrtle. One point, maybe I, it would still be the case, I'll do a little section of short poems. I imagine each one is a kind of putting a, a sprig of, uh, of laurel on a grave. Supple Wreath of Myrtle. Poor Nietzsche in Turin eating sausages his mother mailed to him from Basel. A rented room, a small square window framing August clouds above the mountain, brooding on the form of things, the dangling spur of an alpine columbine, winter-tortured trunks of cedar in the summer sun, the warp in the aspen's trunk where it torqued up through the snowpack. Everywhere the wasteland grows, he wrote. Woe to him whose wasteland is within. Trimming a luxuriant mustache, dying of syphilis, in love with the operas of Bizet. Can you guys hear me? Sort of. (laughs) This is called Futures. This is my high finance poem. It's called Futures in Lilacs. (laughs) Tender little Buddha, she said, of my least Buddha-like member. She may have been quoting Allen Ginsberg, who may have been paraphrasing Walt Whitman. After the Civil War, after the death of Lincoln, that was a good time to own railroad stocks. But he was in the Library of Congress reading up on the curiosities of Hindu philosophy, studying the etchings of stone carvings of strange couplings in a book. She was taking off her blouse, almost transparent, the color of a silky tangerine. From Capitol Hill, Walt Whitman would have been able to see willows gathering the river haze. He was in love with the trolley car conductor in the cooling and still humid summer twilight of, what was it, 1867, 1868? Short poems to start. This is called The Distribution of Happiness. Bed covers thrown back, tangled sheets, lustrous in moonlight, image of delight or longing or torment, depending on who's doing the imagining. If you could stand in all three places, I know, You are the one pierced through. I'm the one bent low beside you, trying to peer into your eyes. If you could stand in all three places, you could bless the world. On the difficulty of describing color. If I said, remembering in summer the cardinal's sudden smudge of red in the gray, bare winter woods... If I said, red ribbon on the cocked straw hat 
on the girl with bee-stung lips who holds the wiry, red-tongued poodle to her hip in the painting by Renoir? If I said fire, if I said blood welling from a cut, or flecks of poppy in the tar-grass-scented summer air on a windstruck hillside outside Fano? If I said her one red earring dangles from her silky lobe, if she tells fortunes with a deck of fallen leaves until it comes out right, rouged nipple mouth, who could, how could you not love a woman who cheats at the tarot? <laughs> and the winter afternoon, it's gone. And the cardinal, how long do cardinals live? Two years, three, their feathers fray. Red, I said, sudden, red. And this is on the difficulty of describing trees. The aspen glitters in the wind, and that delights us, flinging its coins of light through afternoon. But the leaf flutters, turning, because the motion in the heat of summer protects the leaf from drying out, likewise the leaf of the cottonwood. The gene pool threw up a wobbly stem, and the tree danced. No. The tree capitalized. No. There are limits to saying in language what the tree did. We move among these things. Dance with me, dancer, Robert Duncan said. Oh, I will. Mountains, sky, the aspens doing something in the wind. And this is a poem called Etymology. And it's with my effort <clears throat> to reintroduce an old word into the English language. I wrote a poem called Shame, which was a, a, a long oratorio about getting caught picking my nose in public. <laughs> and it has in it a moment when, or not I, the speaker, the, the, the speaker. And, and the speaker is, is meditating on um, this subject, the body's fluids and solids, its various despised disjecta, toenail pairings left absently on the bedside table that your lover the next night notices there, skid streaks in underwear or little faint odorous pea blossoms of the palest polony color, the stiffened small droplets in the sheets of the body's shuddering late-night loneliness and self-love, russets of menstrual blood, toe jam, earwax, phlegm, the little dead militias of white corpuscles we call pus. What are they, after all, but the twins of the juices of mortal glory, sap, wine, breast milk, sperm, and blood, the most intimate hygienes, those deepest tribal rules that teach a child trying to struggle up out of the fear of loss of love from anger, hatred, fear. They get taught to us, don't they, as boundaries, terrible thresholds, what can be said or thought or done inside the house but not out, 
what can be said or thought or done only by oneself, which must therefore best not be done at all, so that the core of the self we learn early is where shame lives and where we also learn doubleness and a certain practical cunning and what a theater is and the ability to lie. I speak to myself, and you, grown up in various ways, are at a typewriter thinking of all the slimes and jellies of decay, thinking that the zombie passages, ghoul corridors, radiant death's head entries to that realm of terror claim us in the sick middle-of-the-night sessions of self-hatred and remorse in the day's most hidden watchful self, the man not farting in the line at the bank, no trace of discomfort on his mild neighbor-loving face, the woman calculating the distance to the next person she can borrow a tampon from while she smiles attentively into this new man's explanation of his theory about deforestation, (laughs) claims us also by seepage in our lies, small malices, razor nicks on the skin of others, of our meannesses, deprivations, rage, and what to do but face that way and praise the kingdom of the dead, Praise the power which we have all kinds of phrases to elide that none of us can worm our way out of. Praise it by calling it time. Say it's master of the seasons, mistress of the moment of the hunting hawk's sudden sheen of great brown gleaming in the morning sun, the characteristic slow gesture, two fingers across the cheekbone deliberately of the lover dreamily oiling her skin. In this moment, no other before she turns to you the face she wants you to see and the rest that she hopes when she can't keep it hidden you can somehow love and which, if you could love yourself, you would. Anyway, in the, in the writing of that... In the, in the writing of that poem, which Meryl uh, Natchez asked me to read, I realized when I did the thing, the juices of mortal glory, milk, blood, breast milk, that there was not a word in English for um, one of the juices of mortal glory. So this poem is called Etymology. Her body by the fire mimicked the light-conferring midnights of philosophy. Suppose they are dead now. Isn't dead now an odd expression? The sound of the owls outside and the soughing of wind in the trees is packed in their brain pulp, sent out in scouting parties of sensation down their spines. If you say it became language or it was nothing, who touched whom? In what hurdle of starlight? Poor language, poor theory of language. The shards 
of skull in the museum looked like maps of the wind-eroded canyon labyrinths from which, standing on the verge in the yellow of a dwindling fall, you hear echo and re-echo the cries of terns fishing the worked silver of a rapids. What to say of her wetness? The Anglo-Saxons had a name for it. They called it silm. They were navigators. It was also their word for the look of moonlight on the water. This is a, a poem called Time and Materials. I, I did as I got a commission to write a poem on some of the abstract, a, a suite of abstract paintings by the, the German painter Gerhard Richter when there was a show of his paintings in San Francisco, and I got to go just hang out with these paintings for uh, a couple of weeks. I could just go look at them for as long as I wanted. Uh, and uh, I probably should have done more with it. But anyway, this is Gerhard Richter, Abstract Bilden, Time and Materials. I don't know if you saw that amazing show, but that, it, with the abstract paintings, he, he layers and then defaces, layers with the squeegee sometimes. They're very stunning things. Time and materials. To make layers as if they were a steadiness of days. It snowed. I did errands at a desk, a white flurry out the window thickening. My tongue tasted of the glue on envelopes. On this day, sunlight on red brick, bare trees, nothing stirring in the icy air. On this day, a blur of color moving in the gym where the heat from bodies meets the watery, cold surface of the glass. Made love, made curry, talked on the phone to friends. The one whose brother died was crying and thinking alternately like someone falling down and getting up and running and falling and getting up. The object of this poem is not to annihilate... The object of this poem is to report a theft in progress of everything that is not these words and their disposition on the page. The object of this poem is to report a theft in progress of everything that exists that is not words or their disposition on the page. The object is page to score, to scar, to smear, to streak, to smudge, to blur, to gouge, action painting, i.e., the painter gets to behave like time. The typo would be painting, action painting, to abrade or to render time and stand outside the horizontal rush of it for a moment to have the sensation of standing outside the greenish rush of it. Some vertical gesture then, the way that anger or desire can, lip, can rip a life apart. Some wound of color. Short poem again. This is Terror of Beginnings. <clears throat> what are the habits of paradise? 
It likes the light. It likes a few pines on a mass of eroded rock in summer. You can't tell up there if rock and air are the beginning or the end. What would you do if you were me, she said. If I were you, you, or if I were you, me. If you were me, me. If I were you, you, he said, I'd do exactly what you're doing. All it is is sunlight on granite, pines casting shadows in the early sun, wind in the pines like the faint rocking of a crucifix dangling from a rearview mirror at a stop sign. Habits of Paradise Maybe if I made the bed it would help. Would the modest diligence seem radiant, provoke a radiance outside aspens glittering in the wind? If I saw the sleek stroke of moving darkness was a hawk high up nesting in the mountain's face, and if for once I didn't want to be the hawk, would that help? Token of earnest, spent coin of summer, would the wind court me then, and would that be of assurance? The woman who carries the bowl bows low in our presence, bows to the ground. It doesn't matter what she's really thinking. Compassion is formal. Suffering is grass. She is not the first thought, not the urgency. Here is where the man made of cedar drinks. Here is where the woman made of fire drinks. Two kinds of birds are feasting in the cottonwoods. She sprinkles millet for the ones that feast on grief. She strews tears for the thirsty one. Desire draws south when the leaves begin to turn. So this is um, a little bit few little bit longer poems. This one is The World as Will and Representation. When I was a child, my father, every morning, some mornings, for a time, when I was 10 or so, my father gave my mother a drug called antabuse. It makes you sick if you drink alcohol. They were little yellow pills. He ground them in a glass, dissolved them in water, handed her the glass, and watched her closely while she drank. It was the late 1940s, a time, a social world, in which the men got up and went to work, leaving the women with the children. His wink at me was a 1940s wink. He watched her closely so she couldn't pull a fast one or put anything over on a pair as shrewd as the two of us. I hear those phrases in old movies and my mind begins to drift. The reason he ground the medications fine was that the pills could be hidden under the tongue and spit out later. 
The reason that this ritual occurred so early in the morning, I was told and knew it to be true, was that she could, if she wanted, induce herself to vomit. So she had to be watched until her system had absorbed the drug. Hard to render in these lines the rhythm of the act. He ground two of them to powder in a glass, filled it with water, handed it to her, and watched her drink. In my memory, he's wearing a suit, gray herringbone, a white shirt she had ironed. Some mornings, as in the comic strip we read, when Dagwood went off early to placate Mr. Dither's leaving Blondie with crusts of toast and yellow rivulets of egg yolk to be cleared before she went shopping on what the comic called a shopping spree with Trixie, the next-door neighbor. My father, like Dagwood, would have to leave early and give the task of vigilance to me. Keep an eye on Mama, partner. You know the passage in the Aeneid? The man who leaves the burning city with his father on his shoulder, holding his young son's hand, means to do well among the flaming auras and the falling columns, while the blind prophet, arms outraised, howls from the inner chamber, Great Troy is fallen. Great Troy is no more. Slumped in a bathrobe, penitent and biddable, my mother at the kitchen table gagged and drank, drank and gagged. We get our first moral idea about the world, about justice and power, about gender and the way things are from somewhere. Um, This is a poem called uh, Against the Wind. It, for people of my age, it's sort of a poem about... Um, it began with reflections on um, uh, what, uh, of what people of my generation, the uh, generation of the 60s, visited on on the world, you know, I heard, you'd hear, in Berkeley, you'd hear kids saying, you know, uh, David's mom's boyfriend is going to take us, pick us up and drop, it, drop us off at Helen's former girlfriend's dad's, bro-, you know, so the, the Berkeley extended family. <laughs> Against the wind. My first wife's older sister's third husband's daughter that's about as long as a line of verse should get field anthropologist kinship map karmic debris just sailed by me on the Berkeley street a student of complex mathematical systems pretty girl ash colored hair I may have changed her diapers and that small frown must be her parents' messy lives. 
desire that hollows us out and hollows us out, that kills us and kills us and raises us up and raises us up, always laughable from the outside, the English wit who complained of sex that the posture was ridiculous had not been struck down by the god or goddess to whose marble threshing floor offerings of grapes or olive boughs and flowers or branches laden with new fruit or bundles of heavy-headed wheat were brought as to any other mystery or power. My friend sat on the back steps on a summer night, sick with her dilemma, smoking long cigarettes while bats veered in the dark, and the scraping sound of a neighbor cleaning a grill with a wire brush ratcheted steadily across a backyard fence. He's the nicest man I could imagine, she said, and I feel like I'm dying. Probably in her middle 30s then, flea markets on Saturday morning, family dinners on Sunday, a family large enough so that there was always a birthday, some maiden aunt from the old neighborhood in San Francisco or a brother-in-law or a child. Had not lived where, tearing, or like burnished leaves in a vortex of wind, the part of you that might observe the comedy of gasps and moans gives way, does not demure. Though she did laugh at herself, an erotic attachment one whole winter to the mouth of a particular television actor. She turned the TV on, watch him for a minute with a kind of sick yearning, shake her head, turn the TV off, go back to the translation of Van Gogh's letters, which was her project that year or do some ironing, that always seemed to calm her, the sweet iron smell of steam and linen. Honest to God, she'd say, an expression the elderly aunts might have used. For Pete's sake, she'd say, get yourself together. Hollow flute or bell not struck, sending out a shimmering not sound in waves and waves, to the place where the stunned dead in the not beginning are gathered to the arms of the living in the not noon, the living who grieve, who rage against and grieve the always solicited, always unattended dead in the tiered plazas or lush meadows of their gathered absence. A man wants a woman that way, a person a person, down on all fours, ravenous and humbled. And later, lovers, you remember the shoeshine boys in Quito, in the city market outside the cathedral, missing teeth, unlaced tennis shoes. They approach you smiling. Their hands are scrofulous. They have no rules, and they'll steal anything. And so would you if you were they. The capital has always just been sacked. The temple hangings burned. Peasants in the ruins are roasting the royal swans in a small fire coaxed from sticks of the tax assessor's empire chair up against a broken wall, lent 
the saints' bodies dressed in purple sacks to be taken off at Easter. For Magdalene, of course, the resurrection didn't mean she'd got him back. It meant she'd lost him in another way. It was the voice she loved, the body, not the God, who, she had been told, ascended to his heaven there to disperse pity and tenderness across the earth. Um, I'll read one more short poem and then one more poem of about that length, I guess. I'll do one more translation, too. Just to say hello to him. Cheslav Milos is not here. He's in Krakow. He's, last time he read here, this room in this room was full of uh, of us of this community he's now 92 years old his wife carol died uh, last year i have a feeling he won't come back to uh, to berkeley where he's with us for 40 years anyway he's 92 years old he's still writing poems still inventing ways to write a poem here's one of his little poems recent poem. Well, it goes like this. It's called Oh. I, uh, I, he sent it to me uh, in a word literal translation and it was O oh, exclamation point. So I e- emailed him and said, do you mean O oh, exclamation point or O-H exclamation point? And he his secretary emailed me back and said, Mr. Miwash says, you better do this on the telephone. So, <laughs> so I called him up and said, do you mean oh or oh? And he said, oh, for sure. So, so this is a suite of little poems called oh. And this one goes, oh, to see an iris the color of Ella's dress and the scent. What? Oh, to see an iris, the color that Ella's dress was once, and the lavender scent was like that of her skin. Oh, what a mumbling to describe an iris when she and I are, will be long gone in all our kingdoms and all our domains. It's the whole poem. Something like that. I didn't get it perfectly. This set him off, embarked him on a whole series of poems called, oh. One, I said I'd just read one. I'll read you one, one or two. We have time. One more, and then I'll read one more poem of mine. This is, oh, Gustav Klimt, 1883-1918, Judith. I don't know if you all of you students have Klimt in mind. He's the turn-of-the-century German painter, who did all kinds of very erotic images. Milos, thinking back on his childhood at that time, imagines that the image that they all took into the trenches, those millions who got slaughtered in World War I, it was Klimt they had in their head. Oh, lips half open, eyes half closed, the rosy nipple of your unveiled nakedness, Judith, and they 
rushing forward in an attack with your image preserved in their memories, torn apart by bursts of artillery shells, falling down into pits, into putrefaction. Ah, massive gold of your brocade, of your necklace with its rows of precious stones, youdeth for such a farewell. Could make you want to live to be 92. (laughs) So here's the last poem, and it's called In Time. In winter, in a small room, a man and woman have been making love for hours, exhausted, very busy wringing each other's bodies out. They look at each other suddenly and laugh. What is this, he says. I can't get enough of you, she says, a woman who thinks of herself as not given to cliché. She runs her hands across his chest, tentative touches as if she were testing her wonder. He says, me too. And she, beginning to be herself again, you mean you can't get enough of you either? (laughs) I mean... He takes her arms in his hands and shakes them. Where does this come from? She cocks her head and looks into his face. Do you really want to know? Yes, he says. Self-hatred, she says. Longing for God. Kisses him again. It's not what it is. Wry shrug. It's where it comes from. Kisses his bruised mouth a second time, a third Years later, in another city, they're having dinner in a quiet restaurant near a park. Fall, earlier that day, hard rain, leaves brass-colored and smoky crimson flying everywhere. Twenty years older, she's very beautiful, an astringent person. She'd become, she said, an obsessive gardener, her daughter's grown. He's trying not to be overwhelmed by love or pity because he sees she has no hands. He thinks she must have given them away. He imagines very clearly how she wakes some mornings. His memory is vivid of her younger self, stirred from sleep, flushed, just opening her eyes. I'm sorry, I lost my way. He imagines very clearly how she wakes some mornings. His memory is vivid of her younger self, stirred from sleep, flushed, just opening her eyes, wakes some mornings to momentary horror because she can't remember what she'd done with them, why they were gone, and then remembers and calms herself so that the day takes on its customary sequence once again. She asks him if he thinks about her. Occasionally, he says, smiling. And you? Not much, she says. I think it's because we never existed inside time. He studies her long fingers, pianist's hands or gardener's, strong, much used as she fiddles with her wine glass and understands vaguely that it must be his hands that are gone. 
When the salad arrives, he's describing a meeting he'd sat in all day, a committee man of his profession, chaired by someone they'd felt many years before mutually superior to. You know the expression, a perfect fool, she'd said the day he'd met her. He'd liked her tone of voice so much. Now, she begins a story of the company in Maine she orders bulbs from, started by a Polish refugee who'd married a French-Canadian separatist in Quebec. It's a story with many surprising turns and a rare chocolate black lily at the end. He's listening, studying her face, still turning over her remark. He decides that she thinks much more symbolically than he does, and that for all her fatalism, it saves her from certain kinds of pain. She finds herself thinking what a literal man he is, notices as if she were recalling it, his pleasure in the menu and the cooking and the architecture of the room. It moves her in the way that earnest limitation can be moving, and she is moved by her attraction to him, also by what he was to her. She sees her own avidity to live then, or not to not have lived might be more accurate, from a distance, the way a driver might see from the road a startled deer running across an open field in the rain. Wild thing, here and gone. Death made it poignant. Or if not death, exactly what she'd come to think of as creatures seething in a compost heap. Then time. So thank you very much.